Welcome to Cropcast. In today's episode, it's no problem if you're a contractor. <laughs> the most simplest form into cropping is actually just mixing varieties of the same species. First of all, you need to you need to have a market for what you're going to grow. I wouldn't necessarily be too gung ho about it to start with, and maybe just do some small scale um, experimentation. I am Tiffany McTaggart, and today we're joined by Robin Walker, a researcher from SRUC, and Gordon Whiteford, a farmer who has been implementing intercrops on his own farm. I am very excited to be talking to them today about intercropping. Thank you for joining me today, Robin and Gordon. Robin, could you begin by introducing yourself? Yes, I'm Robin Walker and I'm a researcher and lecturer based at SIUC's Crabeston campus in Aberdeen. And I've had an interest in intercrop since about 2007. So we've been doing research or agronomic trials on, on the, um, basically cereal legume mixes primarily uh, since then um, and gone through various uh, series of projects looking at these over, over those years. Thanks, Robin. And Gordon, could you introduce yourself? So I'm Gordon Whiteford. I'm a first-generation farmer at Lower Mill of Tynet Farm on the Crown Estate, uh, just outside Falkabers. Farm here with my wife, and we've got quite a mixed farm. We've got poultry, we've got a small micro dairy, some sheep, uh, and we try and be as self-sufficient as possible. So we grow alone, a lot of our own crops. So we do quite a bit of intercropping uh, that gets fed back into the the poultry and the, the cattle diets. Uh, trying to be as just as self-sufficient as possible and, and not rely on buying too much inputs into the farm and maximising what we sell. So we've got a farm shop at the end of the road and a uh, vending machine for milk. Sounds like it'll keep you busy. Well, thank you both for being here today. So just to start with, could we define what intercropping is, Robin? Yeah, basically intercropping is just the growing of more than one crop species in the, on the same area of land. So it's basically a crop mixture of in one sh- uh, shape or form. Uh, I feel, Gordon, you've um, had a bit of experience with intercropping. So what made you start intercropping on your farm? Just uh, like to do things a bit differently. Always looking to to improve what we do. And it just, it just kind of makes sense. It's a bit more natural. Nothing in nature grows in a monoculture, but... As farmers, that's what we try to do, and, and a lot of the issues we get is because that's how we farm. And once you start mixing things up a bit, you're kind of working a bit more to a natural type system. And not saying it's without problems, but um, you can sort of maybe uh, kind of leave it to its own devices a bit more than you um, than than you otherwise would do. You know. So, what crops are you growing on your farm at the moment, Gordon? The first time I ever did it, I think it was triticalian peas, uh, and that's gone back probably about 12, 13 years ago. Um, we didn't really have a lot of ground. It was before we took on the farm here. It was just a wee bit of rented ground we had. And it did really well. Um, and then I never really kind of put it in the back burner. We weren't really growing crops, so I didn't really do it until 2015. I did a full scholarship. And one of the other chaps, Andrew Howard, he actually, his whole Subject topic was intercropping, and uh, sort of pushed me, kind of encouraged me to kind of revisit it and and do it again. Um, and, and when I did my own field, I started to to go and we well, actually both me and Andrew went to Kenya and South Africa together. Um, but in my sort of 
travels I've kind of tried to, to well, it kind of pushed me more into looking after looking at the soil. And I think that's a big thing about intercropping. You know, in conventional agriculture, you look after the plant, you give the plant the nutrients it needs for the crop, uh, and then all the pests and diseases, you just, you know, you monitor it and, it, you know, you give it what it needs. Whereas if you look at the soil, if you've, if you've got, a, you know, a healthy, fertile soil and all the biologies there that should be, then really there's very little you need to do to the plant. It should look after itself. Um, and intercropping kind of helps that, you know, you need that diversity in nature for it to work. And so it's just, you know, it's just bringing that into a, a crop. Great. Thanks, Gordon. So Robin, you've been doing some trials. So what benefits in the trials have you seen on the soils? Yeah. So kind of some of the work that we've been done, I think since about 2007 was when we we first did them through some Scottish government work was uh, really looking at carryover effects or the, the impacts of having a legume as part of the intercrop. So cereal legume intercrops, um, and looking at the productivity of the intercrop itself, but also the kind of the carryover effect or the legacy effect that that could have. So that's obviously the soil in some uh, way, shape or form. Um, obviously, the nitrogen fixation from the legume was a component of that. So you could use less nitrogen on the following crop. Uh, but also, as Gordon said, it, it influences the kind of microbial processes and things that are going on in there, just because you've got slightly different uh, materials in the in the roots or, or the residues that are there um, and for example encouraging worms and things like that so uh, there's a number of factors um, primarily linked to kind of nutrition in one one way or another um, and the impact that can have on the on the um, the soil going forward and, and the, obviously the subsequent crops that you're growing in in that area going forward so would you be likely to see increased yields um, in the following crop um, if you put no nitrogen on, yes, um, but it it allows you to actually grow the crops with with a reduced input of nitrogen. So we've done some work later on as part of a remix project, which was an EU project, um, as well as some more Scottish government work as well. And we were specifically looking at that. So we, we, we managed to kind of not quite half the amount of nitrogen, but we certainly reduced it uh, substantially. Um, so obviously there was a saving there in terms of the nitrogen, but say it's not just it's not all about nitrogen. Um, although obviously with a legume component, that's obviously a key part. It's it's all these other things in terms of the general soil health that you're you're looking at to improve and the improved nutrient cycling of the nutrients that's already there as well. It's great to hear that there's lots of benefits to the soil. So thinking about intercropping, what species have you found worked well together, Gordon? So normally what we do is a cereal and a legume together. So we'll do things like wheat and peas, barley peas, uh, barley peas and oats. Um, barley peas works really well. We've done it a couple of times. You get a nice protein blend. We just bruise that and feed it as it is to cattle. The only problem I find with that is it tends to, if you get heavy rain or wind, it tends to sort of brackle over and it's generally still been easy enough to cut because it's still kind of held up off the ground, but it just looks kind of untidy. Uh, I've never seen that. I've never had that issue with wheat and peas. We do most years, and, and barley peas and oats, and they they all seem to stand. And and it just looks like a normal crop. You wouldn't know it was intercropped. You know, even when you're walking through the field, you're almost hard pushed to see the peas sometimes. 
uh, until you harvest it and it goes in the trailer and you see quite a lot of peas. You know, it's, it's quite deceiving. You know, you think of pea pod and how many peas is in it and, you know, one plant produces quite a lot of peas, so, you know, you don't actually physically have to see a lot of plants in the field to see it. But um, the evidence to the, the soil, you know, we, we see a lot more worms in the ground, just the, you know, general health of the soil just seems to be to be better. It seems to improve the structure. And um, when we see a yield increase, I mean, I think there's been figures quoted, sort of 30 40% increase in yield over just growing a monocrop. And we, I would say, we certainly see that uh, in the organic because we're not putting fertilizer on. So, you know, if you just grow a monocrop, then, you know, you might get a ton and a half to the acre, whereas you grow a, 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 a multi crop, you'll get two tons to the acre, you know. So, you know, that's about a third, third higher yield. And, and, and no inputs, you know, it, it essentially looks after itself. You know, you, you put the crop in the ground and then you go back in and combine it. You know, there's nothing in between, no operations in between you know so it's definitely very beneficial in your system yeah i mean i'm more of a stock farmer than so to put a crop in the ground and shut the gate and forget about it kind of suits me quite quite well you know we rely on contractors to do everything as well so sometimes you think oh you know you know, the time you pay the contractor to come and spray it or whatever you think is you know i'm actually any better off you know that, that probably makes your life a little bit easier when you're not worrying about putting sprays and fertilizers on with you being organic as well Robin, I'm sure with the trials, there's probably a bit more um, inputs going in there. What sort of things have you been looking at? Well, in terms of inputs to the intercrop itself, not very much, because if you start looking at, for example, herbicides, they're really designed to knock out one, you know, the, the, basically they're designed to, to be used on a, on a monocrop more more often than not so if you've got these kind of diverse species in there whether it's a pea barley or pea oat or something like that or pea wheat um the likelihood is you're actually going to kill one of the crops that you actually were intending to kind of grow through to full maturity so we never actually used herbicides on on the um the crops themselves and we have done a little bit of work where we added some fertilizer just a small amount of fertilizer um and yeah it can kind of help boost the crop a little bit um but then you've got the extra addition or you would have the additional cost of of you know the cost of the fertilizer and applying it as well um in terms of things like uh, pest or disease um, control again we didn't really go down the route it was much more down the organic route of, of the, the intercrop itself um, fending for itself and part of the thing we did was actually choose varieties which a kind of matched maturity as best we could given you know that when a peas harvestable is going to be different from when the seed uh, a cereal is harvestable if you've got that kind of intercrop going on um, but we chose varieties partly in terms of trying to match maturity a little bit better but also earliness of maturity was one of the things we, we were looking at as well and disease resistance so if you look going back to the disease pressure we tended to choose varieties which were known to be better um, at the kind of suppression of the key diseases or resistance to the key diseases of those particular crops. Do you have a particular um, mix that was the best by a long shot um, and particular variety as well? Um, there were two 
things that probably came out better for us. I mean, Gordon's already mentioned barley and pea. I mean, he said there was a bit of brackling with some of his, but we found that to be the most con- one of the most consistent um, throughout the, the kind of years that we've done we've done it, um, and we tended to sow at around about sixty percent of the full rate of the pea because we were really looking at protein production so we had a higher proportion of the the seed rate for the pea and then it was about 40 percent of the seed rate for the barley and we've done it with 50 50 um, of the two um, and again other people will have their kind of favorites but that's that's the one that we found worked better um, the other thing that we did was actually we had we grew some lentils in a mix with oats and they actually did quite well. We didn't necessarily grow them through successfully in every year that we tried them to grain of lentils, but we did a couple, on a couple of occasions. Uh, but what we did find we with all our more recent experiments in the in the remix project, we actually looked at um, silage quality that could be made from these because we were a bit concerned about being in Aberdeenshire, the kind of vagaries of the weather and the season. So we each year we had a, a an area of each of the plots that we grew, um, we made into kind of micro silage. So we made small scale silage of these and gave an indication of the kind of the feed value that we could get from that. Um, we took the rest of the plots all the way through to maturity, but we were just looking at really what options have you got to get a, a good quality feed? Because um, most of these were kind of destined for livestock uh, at the end of the day that's what we were really aiming for primarily um, was giving us that sort of option in terms of harvesting because people do get a bit concerned about well how are you going to harvest these things when you know the maturity is different etc etc so it was really just to give people a, a, a few a few ideas of options that they could could take so that sound to be different options gordon what seed rates do you usually use um, most of the ones we've done it's been bought in mixed seed and um, what's generally 60% cereal to 40% peas um, we haven't really changed that just because that's the mix that we got um, we are planning to do a bit more farm saved you know, we've actually farm saved some peas this year and we'll try sowing them next year we've never you know being organic one of our biggest costs is buying in seed because it has to be organic seed um, so we're quite keen. We've, we've farm saved barley and wheat the last few years. Um, we never really farm saved the peas. So we've kind of got the opportunity maybe to make up our own own mix and play about with it a bit more. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. I'm assuming um, if you've got less beans, then the protein levels are going to be going down. So it could could be worth the try for your feeding. Yeah, I mean, because we've got poultry, you know, protein's quite a, you know, we have to buy an organic soya. Um, that's currently around about £1,200 a tonne. So any protein we can grow on the farm is saving us soya. And that's obviously having an impact, you know. Obviously don't grow soya in the UK. Well, grow a little bit down south, but there's no organic soya grown in the UK. Um, so it's... You know, it's it's it's, it's it's not just the yield of crop you get; it's also the um, yield of protein you get per acre. Is you know quite valuable to us. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, add to that, as, as Gordon just said, it's the yield of protein. And one of the things when you've got these legume cereal mixes, you do tend to get elevated protein levels in the, the cereal in the mix as well. So you not only are you getting the protein from the grain legume, whether it's peas or, or, or beans or whatever, lupins or whatever you, you, you may be growing, but you also tend to kind of nudge up the protein levels in the in the grain of the, the cereal as well. So you're kind of getting a, a, a double benefit. So it definitely sounds worth doing for the livestock then. One of the challenges, you know, the, the arable farmers say, think about intercropping is that well, you've need to separate it via different markets. And But we don't separate it because we have the livestock on the farm. So, you know, the wheat and peas can be milled and go straight into the, the hen ration. And, and the same with the cows, when you, when you use barley, peas and oats, and it just gets bruised. And sometimes with popcorn, or we just dry it and bruise it as we need it. And... You know, we don't need to separate it. You know, we just we go with what what, what it is. Um, but I mean, that's changing as well. I had a conversation this morning um, with a company who's designed and built a separator, and they are going to be able to separate five crops. Um, so that's a complete game changer for, you know, arable farmers that want to go down this road and grow multi-species in one field. If they can grow four or five crops all at the same time then you know and put it through a separator then you've got the market the different markets and also what robin said about the higher protein you know that's fantastic for for milling wheat it can push up the protein in the wheat and and make that grades whereas you maybe and then you get the peas also as a, a byproduct to sell so i'm assuming for doing the separation um you're going to have to have grains and seeds at different sizes so they can be separated apart Yes, but I mean, most, even if you look at all your different cereals um, and even different varieties of different cereals are generally different sizes anyway. You know, peas and beans are, you know, obviously different size. You know, you obviously drapes quite small. Um, so, you know, it's something we do with the dress seed anyway. You, you tweak your dresser to, if you're dressing barley, then you tweak it to, to what smalls you're taking out to, to what grains you want to keep, you know. So there's differences between varieties. So that's just, you know, um, a bit more of a challenge, with, you know, if you've got more than one crop. But, you know, for certainly things like peas and beans can be very easily separated. Yeah. So Robin was mentioning before about harvesting. How are you harvesting the crop, Gordon? Um, it's no problem. I pay a contractor. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, they are surprisingly... Uh, okay with it they've kind of you know when you tell them about it and you're like oh no this is going to be a disaster and we haven't had any disasters there's been no no issues at all really you may have to take a bit more trash into the tank uh, to stop it going over the sieves but um, you know for us for feeding it to livestock that's never really bothered us too much um, again if you're going to dress it then you can dress that trash out but um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was you know too bad Um we had one issue one year we're doing barley and peas and it, it choked the sieve in the combine and it, you could see this line where it was just coming over the straw walkers at the back uh, we fixed it you know that was just one round one round around the field and opened up the sieves a bit and you know tweaked the settings in the combine and you know it wasn't an issue after that you know. and have you tried whole cropping it we do uh, yeah so we do arable silage as well generally and if we're putting the field back into grass we'll quite often Sort of an arable silage mix, and you know that's quite common. You know, 
you know, intercropping is a bit alien to when you're talking about cereals and combining them. But for forage, it's you know, it's been about for a long time. Yeah, it's nothing. The same benefits apply, uh, but you know, cutting it and putting it into a silage pit or a bale is a lot easier than taking it through the combine. But we generally, find there's no there's no issue combining it. It's you know, you just set the combine for the you know, the smallest seed or whatever. Excellent. So, Robin, when you've been um, taking the crops through um, to the when they mature, do you find that they all kind of mature at the same time, or do you find the be- beans are ready before um, the cereals, or vice versa? Oh, well, if you're talking about the beans, we've we've not had that much success with the beans because they're generally very very late uh, maturing. So we'd we'd grown it with barley. I know there, some people will grow wheat and and beans um, and sometimes manage that it certainly works in the, i say that these eu projects have been involved and in, it's quite common in france but it, it never really worked quite so well with us um but in terms of things like the, the peas or the, or the lupins um with a cereal mix whether it was oats or or um, barley for example well i guess in gordon's case with the wheat you do tend to get um it's like the the um competitive effect between the two different species so they tend to actually merge a little bit in terms of their maturities so even though for example the peas might be slightly early normally early maturing if they were being grown on their own um, compared to the cereal um, and cereal will be a bit later when you grow them in in a mixture the, the the maturity dates tend to kind of merge a little bit more than you'd expect so that it actually it can help in terms of that Okay, so not beans, but peas and lupins are good options then in Scotland. Better. I still think peas is probably the better one at the moment. The lupins, it, it can be a really, really weedy um, crop as well, bearing in mind your, your limitations in terms of, well, in an organic system, you can't use a herbicide, but you've got limitations um, if you're using it conventionally as well, just because you're likely to kill one or the other of your, your crops. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading the label if they were looking to go and put something on the crops. So, Gordon, what's the biggest challenge in growing into crops that you found? Um, just deciding what to what to put in the ground, maybe. Um, you know, our farm's probably more suitable to growing barley. We tend to use wheat and peas as actually what spring wheat and peas has actually worked really well. For us, uh, wheat is a better feed for hens, so that's generally why we're going to try and grow a bit of wheat. Um, this year we've put in winter wheat, which we've farm saved, uh, and there was actually some peas through it. So it's interesting to see if the peas actually survive the winter. Just when we dressed the seed, the peas was already there, so we just kept it in there. Uh, and if you know if they, if they die back, they're going to you know drop down and feed the wheat. So I'm not really, either way, it's a sort of win-win. If they survive, then we'll get peas in the wheat next year. But um, if they die, they feed the, feed the crop. So we'll see what happens there. Um, I've got no idea what the percentages is. It's just what come off the off the dresser. So, But, yeah, you know, we haven't really pushed the boat and tried too many different things, you know. you know, I mean, even the most simplest form of intercropping is actually just mixing varieties of the same species. So when we started farm saving wheat a few years ago, we actually mixed about four different varieties, uh, which we knew did well in the area, and then we've just farm saved that. So 
what the mix is now, I don't know. It's probably changing, but this sh- it should evolve. You know, you can sort of epigenetics carry over, so it should sort of evolve to to suit your land as time goes on. And whatever varieties do better is going to be the the dominant, I suppose. But um, so I mean, that's intercropping. It's just growing, you know, in, in a very simple simple form, you know, and it it sort of spreads the risk of fungal diseases and and, and you know things like that. So if growing different varieties is classed as intercropping, if you're growing spring barley undersown in grass, would that be intercropping as well? Any sort of diversity you're in, you know, I don't know what Robin's definition is, but I mean, any diversity you can add into that is some sort of form of intercropping, you know. Um, you know, a monocrop something where you only grow one crop, one species, one crop in the field, you know, so any diversity, and even weeds if the weeds aren't competing they can actually be beneficial to your to your crop the way the ground works you get a mycorrhizal fungal and the crops actually speak to each other they send signals to each other so the mycorrhizal fungal is like you know, almost like a straw to the plant so it sends signals if it you know it's obviously photo- photosynthesizing so it's taking carbon and sunlight and putting that down into its roots and that's feeding you know biology it's in the ground and it sends signals to to bring back what it needs if it needs phosphate or potash it will send that signals out and and that's where intercropping kind of works you've got different plant species who can do different things and even having weeds can actually contribute to that um we always think of weeds has been bad and you know competing with the crop but it's not you know i've heard of some people having some tremendous barley yields it's actually been quite weedy um, so you just wonder if the weeds has actually benefited the crop, you know, in some way. It's definitely an interesting point of view, and I can completely understand that. Robin, what are your thoughts? Much the same as Gordon. You know, the basic intercrop is more than, well, two species or, or varieties, as it was mentioned. But you've got um, things like your undersown cereal. I think you mentioned that. Um, you know, it may be an introduction to your grass clover lay or something like that. So you, it's it's far easier to to combine, um, or generally easier to combine um, a cereal that's growing that way. And then you've got your your carryover into your lay phase, and of course you've got a, a green manure element as well uh, going on. Uh, if it was a you know spring crop growing over the winter, um, so you've got the green manure green manure cover over the winter um but you've also got your things like mixed herbal lays now as well so you know your grass clover mix is an intercrop in itself um which obviously you'd normally manage for several years and we're hearing more and more um about the the benefits of mixed herbal lays as well so you know you maybe have i don't know a a dozen species in there, um, including herb species and things like that, which um, will benefit uh, a range of things, not only the, the soil structure, but also uh, what's feeding on them. So, you know, some of the anthelminthics that you get in, in things like chicory can benefit uh, reduced worm burdens and things like that in, in cattle and sheep. So there's a whole range of things that kind of would come under the broad umbrella of intercropping. So, you know, start from fairly simple things up to pretty complex uh, mixtures. You're definitely making it sound much easier and there's probably a lot of farmers out there who are doing intercropping without even realising that's what they're actually doing. This doesn't have to be something like um, peas and barley but it can just be something simple like what your grass mix is. 
Robin, are there any environmental benefits of intercropping? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. We've already mentioned about, particularly if you're using things like legumes, you've got that nitrogen fixation, so you're using less, or got the option of using less nitrogen fertiliser. We've also talked about a lot of the, the soil health benefits, you know, the general soil health benefits and the micro biodiversity that you've got in the soil, well, as well as things like worms as well. Uh, they tend to um, en encourage uh, the use of worms if you've got um, some of these mixtures. So in terms of general soil health, so one of the things you've, we've got is is there's a more and more companies or, or processes are interested in the kind of environmental credentials of where that their you know the, the raw materials for their products have come from. So again, intercrops may well play a part there in terms of being able to kind of help with the you know the green certification. Um, and, and uh, supporting of, of, of their products as well, which could help with their marketing strategies. Definitely sounds like intercops is something that's going to be more and more common going forward then. Um, Gordon, if somebody was going to start intercropping for the first time, what advice would you give them? Um, I mean, I think you said it yourself there that, you know, I think most farmers are probably doing it to some extent especially in a grassland um, scenario. Um, I think it's probably a lot more interesting, especially with the cost of fertiliser in the last say, year or two. Um, you know, I try to reduce the inputs, try to reduce, you know, I'm trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. So that's, you know, diversity of species on the farm. And, you know, the hen muck goes back to help grow the crops, which goes round to feed, back to feed them. So it's sort of... Um, nutrient cycling. Going back to grassland, you know, I think there's quite a lot of research looking at, you know, multi-species grasses is outperforming, you know, a monocrop of ryegrass with synthetic fertiliser. And I think um, when you're talking about what challenges before, a lot of the varieties that you use today have been bred are the ones that respond best to artificial nitrogen. So it's almost as a vicious circle that we're getting sold these varieties and we're getting sold the fertilizer because they all complement each other um so, so yeah almost coming off of that treadmill and you know you do have to sort of question what what varieties we're breeding you know are we going to have we probably have not been going in the right direction you know and i think you know it needs a fundamental change and i think that's why we're quite keen to farm save our own seed just because hopefully, you know, it's get sort of epigenetics will sort of kick in and hopefully hopefully that seed's evolving for us, you know, over time. It definitely sounds like you've jumped off that treadmill um, and are thinking about what you're doing and why you're doing it as well. Robin, I think you've got some interesting projects which you're working on. Do you want to tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, so following on from some of the kind of more agronomy type projects, the, the remix in the Scottish Government, where, which we've spoken a little bit about earlier, we've got a new EU project called Intercrop Values, which is really looking at the supply chain of products which have been produced from an intercrop in some way, uh, shape or form. So um, really looking at the kind of the sticking points in that value chain and how we can overcome those um, so that, yeah, there's a, there's a range of things being done in the UK. We're linked with SAOS for, the, for our, our part, um, but the various other countries are looking at particular things, but ours is specifically about high-end or high-value 
um, products being produced from uh, intercrops at the, at the farm level and and how they kind of tie along in the in the value chain there. That sounds like a very interesting project. So, Gordon, what top tip would you give anyone who's deciding to grow um, a legume and a cereal together for the first time? First of all, you need to you need to have a market for what you're going to grow. Um, if you've got your own livestock on the farm, then that's easy. You know, you've got the, you've got the market there. If you want to sell that, then is there a livestock farmer that's going to buy you? So you'd have to separate it, or do you have the means to separate it, or you know, can another company buy it off you and separate? You know, and if the two different two different products. Um, so this this. It's such a big topic. There's so many options, um, and kind of feel like we're just gonna scratch the surface ourselves. Um, but just you know, mixing varieties. If you're growing malt and barley, for example, you know the malt doesn't want a single variety, so you know you have to be careful. But with what you do, I mean, you know, there's no point in doing anything unless you've got a market for it. So that's the number. That's the number one um, challenge, possibly. Um, after that, then yeah, you can you can crack on and do whatever you want. You know, you know, you know. Every, everybody knows their own farm and what it's capable of. It's just um, pushing the boundary a little bit and and trying to improve. You know, you're not going to jump out and start growing maize or soy or something like that. You know, you just um, look at what you what your neighbours are growing and what you know what experience you've got and just and just work on it. You know? Know your own market is definitely very good advice. It's pointless growing it if there's nowhere um, for it to go afterwards. And I'm by the sound of things, Gordon, I feel like it's very much trial and error once you get into it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen if it any disasters. Um, I think you've maybe get more options if it does go wrong. Um, if you grow wheat and peas, you know, there's nothing stopping you cutting it for, for silage. If you think it's too weedy and you don't want to take it through to combining, um, but again, it's one of the things about intercropping is actually we actually see less weed pressure because you're almost filling that void. Uh, you know, if you grow a monocrop, then nature wants to kick in and add diversity, so they throw the weeds up. Whereas if you put that diversity in, in the first place, then you've actually suppressed nature wanting to throw weeds at it. So you know, you've 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 created you're in charge of the diversity instead of you know nature being in charge of it. So. You don't really have to understand what's happening. You just have to go, th- you know, understand the concept and maybe have a little bit of faith, but um, a faith, in, you know, a faith in nature. But it's it's going back to, you know, farmers centuries ago knew knew the land and you know, um, you no know, rotations and you know, I think we've lost a lot of that knowledge. Uh, almost almost made farming too simplistic um, and that's that's what creates a lot of our problems Do you find that you've got less weeds across your farm now that you're doing intercropping? Um, I think the obvious one for us is we don't seem to see so much wild oats when we first took over the farm the whole farm was ploughed and it was all in barley um, in some fields you see quite a lot of wild oats and that's something we just don't seem to see anymore. Um, presumably the wild oats are still there. It's just they haven't got the conditions to, to grow. Um, 
I wouldn't say we've got too much. Again, you know, things like Dawkins, we, we don't have a lot of Dawkins, but if you get a wee bit of poaching around the side of the field, you'll see a little bit of Dawkins start to come in. Um, again, we actually see the cattle graze the Dawkins, and there's, there's a nutritional, I think gram for gram, there's actually more nutrition in Dawkins leaves than there is grass, but, you know, that's not to say you want a field of Dawkins, but, you know, there, there's a nutritional benefit to the cattle. There's full of tannings and, you know, um, they've got a deep roots, so they're bringing nutrients up from further down the, the soil profile. So um, it's a bit like planting chicory, you know, is, is it a herb? Is it benefiting you or is it, or is it a weed? You know, there's two ways of looking at everything. So um, a weed's only a weed if you don't, if it's causing you a problem. You know? Yeah, definitely. Robin, do you have any tips for people growing into crops for the first time? I wouldn't necessarily be too gung-ho about it to start with and maybe just do some small-scale um, experimentation, um, depending on how <laughs> what your risk levels are. But um, definitely worthwhile doing some experimentation. There's lots of information about there um, from you know various places now there's there's more of it about so there's lots of information you can pick up uh, like technical notes and technical leaflets and things like that um, from various places and just get a feel for um, you know the type of thing that you should go go with but I would go for something fairly simple to start with um, you know fairly basic just to kind of get a feel for it um, and as, as Gordon said Farmers will know their farms better than anybody um, and which fields are most likely to kind of, uh, you know, the, each of their fields and, and, and the, you know, the climate and everything and what may or may not work. So wouldn't necessarily go with a, there isn't really a standard thing to go for, but you'll have a, a feel for maybe what might work uh, based on, well, some of the discussion that we've had um, this today but also from some of these other sources of information um, linked to some of the projects for example that um, I've, I've mentioned as well there's out, outputs from those and others thank you robin and gordon for joining us today it's really appreciated you giving up your time to tell us about intercropping big thank you for all of you who've listened today and if you've enjoyed the episode please like subscribe and follow our podcast why not try listening to Natural Capital? It's one of our other podcasts and there's an episode that came out in December looking at natural capital on arable farms. It's definitely worth a listen. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.